You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. U.S. health officials are warning Americans to brace for a harsh second wave of COVID-19 this winter. Washington Post Live talked to Dr. Von Cooper, an evolutionary microbiologist at the University of Pittsburgh, who is leading the way in utilizing cutting-edge technology to track the coronavirus's genetic code to control the spread. Following his segment, you'll hear from Dr. Vin Gupta, a pulmonologist and global health policy expert who will examine the outlook of the vaccine race and what lies ahead for 2021. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Bob Costa, a national political reporter with The Post. As the coronavirus pandemic continues to ravage our country, millions of Americans have questions and concerns about the virus. We all want to learn the latest about how experts are tracking it and combating it. And beyond wearing a face covering and social distancing, people want to know what is actually being done behind the scenes. So to answer that question, we will speak this morning with two leaders, two doctors. Our first guest is Dr. Vaughn Cooper. He is an evolutionary microbiologist and a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. He is also the principal investigator for Cooper Lab. He has created rapid genomic sequencing for Pitt Hospital, the whole system, and he has done contact tracing among patients for nursing homes, and he's done work with agricultural workers through a partnership in Louisiana. And after I speak with Dr. Cooper, I will sit down with Dr. Vin Gupta, who is on the front lines in Seattle, in the ICU, in the emergency room with the University of Washington. But first, Dr. Cooper, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for having me. How can genetics, doctor, stop the spread of the virus? Yeah, so super question. First, uh, it's useful to, to sort of separate this sort of work from the ordinary testing that we would do to determine whether uh, you actually have COVID or not. That basically uh, asks by amplifying a little piece of the genetic code of the virus, do you have the virus or not? And the kind, the method that we uh, developed and have been applying along with many others around the country is to sequ sequence the entire genome of that virus, which we can use uh, di any distinctions in the letters of that genetic code to determine whether the virus that you isolate from patient X is the same as the patient in X and uh, the one in patient Y. How does that actually work for people who aren't doctors or medical experts? We all hear about the swabs and the tests for coronavirus, but if you're getting your genetic uh, sequencing done, how does that work and what are you looking at? Yeah, so, so it is a bit more involved, you're right. So what we do is we take the nucleic acids, the, the RNA in this case, and we separate that from the material from, from the patient we then use a couple of machines to amplify that uh, material and decode every letter of the of the genome that takes a bit longer it's a little bit more expensive but in the end we have a complete record of all 29,000 sort of nucleotides or letters in the rna uh, alphabet of the coronavirus genome and then we can compare that sequence first with the original isolate that was sequenced 
in from Wuhan, China. But we can also compare that sequence with literally every other sequence ever decoded on the planet. So that teaches us a bunch. It teaches us whether that virus that you've studied, just isolated, is similar to others in your region or different. And in the context of, say, contact tracing, what it allows you to do is determine whether the virus that you're looking at came from a close relative or perhaps came from sort of general community spread. So I'll give you, you one example where it really could make a difference. Suppose you have three cases uh, happening on the same day at a school. You might ask, well, if we could sequence all of those viruses pretty quickly, get a result you know, in 48 to 72 hours, you would know if they are the same virus, the same letters are identical across, then that's likely a, a spreading event. And that might be a, a support for a closure. Whereas if they're all different, that's more consistent with just three random uh, inoculations, acquisitions from the community. You would just isolate those cases and their families, and you could probably keep the facility open. What have you discovered about the virus in the United States? How many versions of COVID-19 are in this country? That's an important question. So this gets tricky. In the end, right, there's actually still only one virus. There's really only one SARS-CoV-2 virus. And they're basically all functionally the same, still the same bad actor that we first uh, discovered uh, back in January. But over time, that population of viruses affecting humans around the planet uh, has started to accumulate subtle changes at about uh, two changes per month. So now that we're in, in uh, week, uh, so month 10 of this pandemic, if you compare any two viruses at random from around the globe, they'll differ by about 20 letters. And as far as we know, none of those 20 differences are likely to affect how severe the virus is. It's still the same virus, but we can use those little fingerprints that those 20 differences on average to determine where they came from and whether it's part of a, a local cluster or maybe it had been introduced uh, from travel. Have we seen genomic sequencing help doctors in previous outbreaks with different viruses? Yeah, we, we certainly have, Bob. Um, so it's been uh, used to great success in the fairly uh, famous recent Ebola outbreak. Um, and really uh, full credit to a large international team to implement that technology and, uh, and deploy it on the ground to, to trace the spread of epidemics and clustering in, in the Ebola outbreak. And that was ultimately successful. Uh, it's also being used um, sort of uh, episodically, maybe periodically, uh, in hospitals around the country, including ours, for a variety of pathogens to, to determine whether uh, a cluster of cases in a hospital might be due to spread within that hospital. And that's one of the major applications that we had been doing already here at, at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center uh, with bacterial pathogens. So in some sense, so we were kind of primed to do this when COVID hit. At Pitt's Medical Center, Dr. Cooper, how does that work? If someone comes in, they get tested for the virus, and then do you ask them about uh, if they will participate in genomic sequencing? Are there any privacy issues involved? 
Yeah, so that's that's a that's a tricky question. Um, in general, the work that my lab does is completely de-identified. But I work with a close uh, clinical cl work closely with a clinical team who has access to patient records, who do require uh, need to ask for for consent for sampling, uh, because my lab, uh, which is an academic lab. Uh, can is only working with de-identified samples. What we can do is provide a kind of a, a neutral and unambiguous uh, evaluation of whether the viruses are the same or are they different. To ultimately get that data back to the patients requires coordination both with their their treating physician, but also with the county public health. And you probably know that in managing this this pandemic that data, that, that handoff with the public health office is important for managing public considerations. And so uh, that, that usually, that permission uh, usually is granted quite quickly. Everybody wants to see this virus eradicated, uh, but I'm a political reporter and I cover how Washington is funding things at the CDC. And I, I've studied a little bit about the funding of genetic sequencing. And you see the United Kingdom is putting a lot of money into this. Have you seen, in your view, enough support for your project and others like it from the federal government? And if not, what needs to be done in your view? Um, so regrettably, uh, the, the, the funding has been um, really been lacking in its coordination, right? So there's no question that the United States has allocated uh, many dollars uh, for research to fight COVID, particularly in some heroic efforts to support, to support vaccine development. But this kind of, uh, kind of epidemiological uh, backbone and network um, was underfunded coming into this epidemic and remains underfunded as it proceeds. And this uh, tool that we have that, you know, frankly, the United States was at the lead of developing has been implemented incredibly well by a number of countries. Um, so you mentioned the United Kingdom. Actually, Australia is in the lead uh, globally in terms of the number of virus sequences per cases. They've actually sequenced about 45 percent, uh, the virus sequence from 45 percent of all cases in, in the country of Australia, and that's remarkable. New Zealand is also up there, United Kingdom, Iceland, also Taiwan. We rank 39th on that list uh, in terms of the number of viruses sequenced per cases at about four per 1,000 cases. There's really no reason given the total outlay of support that we couldn't do a lot better. And, and then another concern that I have is that of the viruses that we are sequencing, we're doing an even worse job of sharing that data quickly. So we rank about out of the top 50 countries in the in, on the world for for the speed of data sharing. Now there's a huge degree of variation. I'm really proud that that my team and several other teams around the country are really at the forefront of their speed of sharing, but there's a lot of variation. So it really it's really a lack of coordinated effort um, from the top to uh, unify this kind of monitoring and reporting. Well, give us the context for that, Dr. Cooper. If Australia, for example, is atop the list for sequencing and, and, and doing it across the board. What advantage do they have as fall unfolds, as people head indoors, more cases uh, unfortunately begin to rise across the world? What position would Australia be in versus the United States by having sequencing be much more rampant? 
So in, they've gotten to the point where the, the virus sequence is essentially a geographical tag. I mean, it becomes almost as laser focused as the kind of big data that, you know, that uh, sort of the titans of, of uh, Silicon Valley use to track our preferences, right? They, they know, they can know from that virus sequence that was last seen in that region with that person, or at least that, you know, some person like that, and when they see that virus again, they know where to look from where it came. Um, you know, there may be some subtleties, there may be some some minor complications in that work, but they're incredibly powered to to react to new outbreaks, to test interventions, and implement the interventions that work the best. It becomes a really quick, uh, adaptive uh, uh, approach to controlling spread. We don't have that capacity here in the United States right now. In addition to your work at the University of Pittsburgh, you work with Louisiana's Department of Health on outbreaks in nursing homes, in jails, among agricultural workers. What's the reality right now, Dr. Cooper, especially in nursing homes as older people deal with the, the colder temperatures? Uh, the, the reality is there remains a lot of fear and there's a lot of uh, constraint. Um, in terms of where we come in, I, I want to give full credit to uh, a super team at the uh, Louisiana uh, State University's uh, Health Sciences uh, Program, uh, Jeremy Camille and, and, um, and John Van Sheer there. Um, they, uh, uh, they really took the initiative on themselves to create that this kind of community monitoring uh, approach that we would hope uh, nationwide and, and implement it in Louisiana, and they become leaders uh, in, in using this technology. And, in, and and we're glad to have partnered with them by providing the the sequencing through through our, our little um, uh, comp, uh, sort of startup microbial genome sequencing center. To answer your question directly, what we're learning is whether you see sustained transmission of the same virus bumping around the nursing homes. And that was really what happened early on. As you know, a lot of mortality early on in elderly care facilities, and it was really all one introduction and then and then spread uh, within that, that introduction. That's being uh, stamped out. And now you can use the same kind of technology to, to ask whether the same thing is happening where you're seeing now we see, unfortunately, more community prevalence, and so people coming into the care facilities are more, more likely to bring sort of new viruses into those facilities. The same is true for prisons. The same is true for agricultural um, uh, uh, worker groups and so on. So really just this is asking about whether you're seeing sustained transmission that you still haven't tamped out or where you're seeing new introductions. What happens when there's a new introduction? If, if someone's already contracted coronavirus months ago in a nursing home and a new version of this virus, a, a new sequence of the virus appears in that nursing home, what are the implications health-wise? Yeah, so good news is that um, if the patient has already had COVID and has recovered from it, it is extremely likely that uh, they will not be infected, or if they are reinfected, the, the symptoms will be will be significantly milder, so mild that you might not even report them. That's that's how uh, our own built-up immunity uh, is expected to work, and we're actually hoping that that any vaccine that comes out is going to work uh, much the same way, or perhaps even better. Um, but 
uh, if that virus comes in, as you say, into that population, uh, you know, where every patient that is susceptible to this new virus is going to be just as susceptible as they were to the original virus. Those little changes that allow us to determine whether it was the same or a different virus are are, are insufficient to change the the sort of outcome of that of that of that uh, infection. You mentioned vaccines, and that's something I've been tracking. Such an important story, but I'm curious yeah. uh, if a vaccine is developed for one sequence of the virus, will it still work for other sequences of the virus, other versions of the virus? Thanks for raising that that super question, Bob. Um, so right now we believe that uh, any vaccine that is likely to make it to market is going to work against all viruses that we see out there um, with the very, very possible exception of, of one or two rare variants that, that really haven't reached appreciable frequency. In fact, they might be so rare that we're not aware of them. So I wanna say that it's going to work for nearly every virus and essentially all. We believe that all, uh, all of the circulating population is going to be hit by an effective vaccine the same way. However, um, the application of the sequencing technology becomes in a sense even more important following the rollout of the vaccine because we do know that RNA viruses can evolve rapidly and we know that viruses like influenza every year off, can uh, evolve uh, to, to resist a particular vaccine. And so it'll be really important that we start looking for changes in particular parts of the virus that might allow it to escape uh, vaccine-mediated immunity. Oh, so you're saying once a vaccine is developed, genetic sequencing could be helpful in helping a vaccine be adjusted down the line. Absolutely right. It's going to, it may actually wind up in, over the years becoming a bit more like an adaptive vaccine, like where we've grown accustomed to every year with, with our influenza vaccines. Is it, do you envision the coronavirus vaccine being similar to a flu vaccine in that sense, and that it has to be tweaked every once in a while? Well, so uh, I want to just be clear that that um, I'm I'm now sort of at the limit of my expertise, but based on the information that colleagues who are experts have shared with me, it sounds like that's not likely to happen on nearly the same timetable. That is, I think whatever vaccines that we get out of this first run, they are likely to be effective for years um, as is, uh, because actually the coronavirus evolves more slowly than the flu than influenza the influenza virus and furthermore it is still much 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 less diverse than all of the flu vaccines and so there's much less potential right now for the virus to evolve to high levels of escape variants that is mutants that can evade the vaccine and still cause illness that's going to take some time but we might anticipate that down the road, and that's why this sort of technology that, that we've invested in can be really powerful. Final question here, Dr. Cooper. You've been in the middle of a pandemic, on the front lines at Pittsburgh's Medical Center. You've been sequencing this terrible virus. Without getting too complicated, when you step back and reflect on your experience, what has surprised you the most about this virus and what you've learned about it? Um, I, I mean, unfortunately, what's surprised 
uh, many of us in the community the most is uh, how uh, how many of us were ready to go out of the gate to develop and employ technologies that we basically already had to help and and how ineffective we've been able to uh, to apply them at a nationwide scale. I would say that's been the biggest surprise. Beyond that, the virus has behaved about like what we thought and based on what we knew about other coronaviruses, uh, it, it evolved slowly. It basically looks the same uh, with the exception of these minor changes. It's super transmissible. And I guess the, probably the biggest surprise, I guess, from the virus perspective is just how transmissible it is and how much variation there is among patients in how how many new cases they generate, right? So how many, it seems that, you know, 80% of new cases come from 20% of infections. And that amount of variation is a bit surprising and, and certainly makes makes it harder for all of us to understand because no 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 two uh, infections are, are going to be the same in terms of their their rate of transmission. But Dr. Cooper, just a quick follow-up. When you talked about the failures in terms of the response to the virus, what do you mean? What were you referring to? Well, what I what I mean is in terms of my area, uh, we really had hoped we could use this sequencing technology at a broader scale uh, like like other countries had. And we were aware, you know, we're we're a global scientific community. We saw what the UK was doing. We saw what Australia was doing. We think that that we in the United States can certainly do the same thing. And we'd like to do that. That's what I mean. It's, it's sort of a lack of uh, of communication at the at the state and federal level to employ these technologies at broad scale. It is great that we are employing it uh, locally to take care of our, our local medical communities. And I think we're doing a very good job of it in places where you have a strong academic medical center like UPMC. Um, but uh, there's an opportunity to, to share this broadly. Dr. Cooper, really appreciate your time this morning. Best of luck with all of your endeavors as you fight this virus. Thank you very much, Bob. It's been a pleasure. And please stay with us, everyone watching. I'll be back in just a moment with Dr. Vin Gupta after this short video. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Bob Costa, national political reporter here at The Washington Post. My guest this morning is Dr. Vin Gupta. He is a pulmonologist, an ICU doctor based in Seattle. Dr. Gupta, welcome to Washington Post Live, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me, and thanks to the Washington Post for the invitation. Dr. Gupta, some European leaders are imposing new restrictions and curfews as the virus and cases surge across the continent there. It's being called the second wave. Do you believe it will be necessary for countries to go on a full national lockdown, both in Europe and elsewhere, to control the virus this winter? You know, Bob, it's an important question, and it's a question that unfortunately um, is prone to fear mongering, as we've seen just in the last few weeks in the way our, our political leaders talk about this. So I want to be really careful when I say science, uh, we hope, will guide any type of lockdown if it's necessary, and, and we hope it isn't. Uh, but, but there's things that you've probably heard me endlessly talk about, you're sick of, uh, of hearing it from me, uh, that we could use to avert that. And, and let me get into that for, uh, for, for a moment here. What we're seeing in places like Wisconsin in Ohio, where the infection growth rate is the highest it is nationwide right now, 
Wisconsin, we're seeing uh, uh, field hospitals being built up. I just got a, a request from the Society of Critical Care Medicine and colleagues at Stanford that uh, South Dakota and the Indian Health Service in South Dakota is desperately in need of ICU providers because uh, they're having surgeries there they haven't seen before. The reason is unfortunately pretty basic. These are places, the, the Midwestern Plain states, where we're seeing masking rates, and this is data from my own home institute, Institute for Health Metrics at the University of Washington. Masking rates there were 30 to 40 percent. Individuals reporting that that's the rate at which they would use a mask if they were out in public. So that's one. Two, we know seasonality. There's been a lots of debates about seasonality. As it gets colder and drier, do we expect a respiratory virus to be more transmissible? Uh, some studies say yes, others are a little bit more equivocal on COVID-19. Uh, as a pulmonologist, I think the answer is yes. We know that viruses like colder, drier air. We know also know, uh, Bob, that testing is plateauing. The number of tests per day in the United States has plateaued even as cases rise. That means community transmission is happening, absolutely. And so that combination of factors there worries me, Bob, that in certain places we may need to go towards more of a shelter in place type approach uh, come the winter time. I hope that we can avert a national lockdown. But again, I think how we talk about this is key because there are people looking to capitalize on this specific issue to fear monger. Well, doctor, in this morning's Washington Post, my colleagues and I wrote a lot about Dr. Scott Atlas, this advisor to President Trump, who tweeted over the weekend that he doesn't believe face coverings are effective. Uh, Twitter and other social media companies flagged that tweet for being uh, bad information to share with the American people. That's what that's what an advisor to the president put out in the public sphere. What does that mean for this country as it braces for winter? You know, I, I, on masking, I'm just I'm not going to mince words. And and Scott Atlas uh, has has uh, completely uh, uh, gone against his oath to to the profession of medicine before the American people to put something out there. I don't know what data he's looking at, but there's reams of data suggesting that masking of any type is beneficial. Better masks are better. But for him to make the argument that masks in and of themselves are not helpful is irresponsible, it's shameful, and he should, that is not what a, a medical doctor or any type of doctor should be putting out in the public sphere. So he is at fundamentally going against his most basic oath, which is first do no harm. I don't know, understand why uh, outside of politics, I don't even understand why this is considered good politics to be an anti-mask messenger. I get outreach from patients across, uh, of, of uh, varied political spectrums because they readily share with me their political beliefs. I don't ask them, but they, they do. Teachers across the country, no one here that I get outreach from is debating masks. But you know what, Pop, they want to know, what about quality of, of masks, Doc? How, how can I go visit family and friends safely if they must for the holidays? They're not debating this silliness. We've, we put the, most Americans have put this to rest. The fact that he continues to peddle this suggests that there's other alternative secondary intentions here, certainly not the well-being of Americans. You just raised an interesting point about uh, masks. If someone is going to visit their family in the winter and they're in a Midwestern state and it's, it's uh, 10 inches of snow outside in Illinois and Chicago, what kind of face covering should they be wearing? Uh, sh and should they even go to Chicago to visit family? I'm glad I'm glad you asked that since I, I like to bring props to make this stuff um, a little bit more real since 
I think, you know, I, I will say, I feel like those of us in medicine are so are guilty sometimes of talking in technical language. So I try to simplify things. Uh, top line here is if, if only travel, if it's an emergency or if it's an urgent matter, and I recognize all of us, I, I desperately want to go see family and friends uh, a, a, as much as anybody else, but you have to do it safely. And, and, and I'll be very frank here. I saw my, my, my mom and dad back in Ohio. They live in Toledo, Ohio, back over Labor Day weekend for three days. And what I was able to do is something that most people do not have, are unable to do. I was able to reuse an N95 mask. I've shown this a few times on air. An N95 mask from an ICU shift. I was able to essentially expose it to sunlight for a period of time. I felt like that was a reasonable way to recycle it in the absence of actually having a fresh N95, which I wouldn't have used for that purpose. So I had an N95 mask. I was able to test myself because I have access to a rapid testing machine. Those of us in, uh, in ICU medicine, some of us do have access to, to, to quick tests because we get exposed often. So I was able to test myself on the front end after quarantining. I essentially uh, tried to minimize what I did for 72 hours for, before I got on a flight. I tested myself 24 hours before getting on the flight. I was negative. I then wore the best mask available to me, an N95 mask. I used it because I had it available to me. I wore it for the duration of the three-hour flight. On the back end, I was actually home for a week. On the back end, I, I wore a mask in front of my elderly parents for 72 hours, and then I tested myself again. And, and the question here is, I also wore my glasses just for, for eye covering. People have asked me about uh, eye coverings. I, I mentioned that to you, Bob, because there's a, there's a few implications there. One, unless you're an ICU provider or you're the president of the United States or somebody in his inner circle or you're otherwise privileged, you probably don't have access to the best quality masking that our country produces. Because it's not just about access, it's about fit. I have to get a 10 minute test in a hospital to make sure that this is appropriately fit to my face. That isn't just an intuitive thing. You actually have to get tested for that. So there's logistical barriers to scaling high quality masks. Number two, there's supply issues. We still somehow do not have enough of these $1 masks. Or frankly, uh, people uh, don't have enough three-ply surgical masks. These were the masks that the USPS was gonna send to every household, five of these, every American household back in March that was stopped by the executive branch. So that's number two. And then most people do not have access to a rapid testing platform, which is unfortunate eight months in. If you cannot do the things I outlined, it's my personal opinion and everybody has an opinion, it's my opinion, that you shouldn't safely, uh, that you cannot safely feel like you wouldn't be doing harm or potential harm to a loved one by going to visit them. So my, my, my I, and I'm not traveling for the holidays myself because I feel, one, I'm working, number two, I think the seasonality component makes traveling even more risky because we know flu and COVID-19 are gonna be even more transmissible in the months ahead. So I think there's little one can do, but just to give you a sense of, the hoops one, you, one must consider traversing before going home to visit family. It's a high quality mask, testing on the front and on the back end, and some type of eye covering. I wear glasses, so I think that might be sufficient. The eye covering piece, there's, uh, I think the data is a little unsettled. So that's a choice, doctor, whether people go to visit their family or not. But I was talking to a friend over the weekend who works in a restaurant, and people are showing up to work at this restaurant. People are eating indoors at this restaurant as the weather gets cold here in Washington, DC. And, and the, these employees are very nervous. They're not sure the risks they're actually taking. The masks they're wearing aren't N95 masks. 
what are the, what are the challenges and risks they actually face? They're not medical experts, but they would love to hear your view. If, if you're, uh, first of all, I think, and this is tough because there's the economics of it, and I understand that, how, how we think about indoor dining as we enter uh, the, the, the colder months is going to be really complicated. Because I understand people have jobs and livelihoods here, and how do we do this safely? Because you can only have so many heaters outside, especially in the Northeast. It's, a, it's really contingent on restaurants and establishments, in my view, to make sure that everybody at least has a three-ply surgical mask. So that's one of these medical-grade surgical masks. We know that they're better than cloth masks. Cloth masks are good. These are better, and 95 masks are the gold standard. So that's number one. I agree with face shields or some type of eye covering because there is some data suggesting that eye coverings in, in close pro when you're in close proximity to other individuals on top of masking can really protect an individual, especially from droplet transmission of COVID-19. And then frequent testing. Listen, I, 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 I don't have the expertise to weigh in on whether or not, uh, how do we open up restaurants uh, safely in terms of capacity? I think we're still thinking 25 to 50% capacity indoors probably is, is potentially safe. Indoor dining though is generally speaking unsafe. You're taking a calculated risk whether you're a worker or whether you're a consumer or whether you're a diner, you're taking a risk because you have to take the mask off and in the process of taking the mask off or drinking or eating, you're exposing yourself. We know that restaurants are, are, are really dangerous for indoor transmission. So it'd be my opinion, my personal recommendation for, for individuals to avoid indoor dining with any type of frequency because it, it is not, we don't feel like it's a, necessarily a safe thing to do. You can't mitigate risk. But if you're a worker, and I believe this, whether it's for a restaurant worker or whether it's a school teacher or a school or, or a student in a school, we need to figure out a way as a country to test people regularly. We cannot leave this up to chance to local or state officials. We need to have a testing regime in place for every public school district, every restaurant employee, you name it. Everybody on the front lines in some fashion, not just doctors and nurses, needs access to regular testing. Otherwise, we're flying blind. So that's a key piece here as well. And I know this is your personal opinion and there are other opinions, but I think our audience would love to have some clarity on this term that's flying around social media. It's flying around the White House based on the Washington Post's own reporting. Herd immunity. What is it and is it possible or not? Well, since you asked for my opinion, I'll, I'll start by saying that concept is morally reprehensible. And anybody who has actually cared for a patient uh, or has had a loved one who's, who, who's died from COVID-19, uh, none of us believe in this. Uh, but the idea here, uh, to be as scientific as possible, is this notion that um, any virus uh, stops transmitting itself or essentially effectively the, the infection rate, growth rate of a virus um, minimizes and goes down to zero after a certain proportion of the population is infected, either naturally and or um, uh, we think about the contribution of a potential vaccine. So people get ex have an immune response because they've been vaccinated to a virus or they've been naturally infected and have immunity that way. We think about 60% of the population probably needs to have one or the other for COVID-19 to start to, to stop transmitting at high rates. To get there, well, let's, let's think about a few things. Number one, 
we think only five to 10% potentially of the United States population has been exposed and, and infected to COVID-19. That's probably an overestimate in many zip codes. So that means most of us have not been exposed and or infected to the virus. Meaning the deep concern here is that any herd immunity strategy would cost unnecessary lives. Because here's the thing, Bob, there's people out there, the Scott Atlases of the world who wanna make you believe and they, 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 try to, uh, they try to seize on things that seem very like simple concepts. Oh, well, why don't we just open up colleges and universities, let the virus run amok amongst the 20 to 29-year-old crowd, and we'll cocoon the elderly in their nursing facility or at home. That sounds like it makes sense, but it doesn't. We now have multiple data points suggesting a spike in, the, in a college-age cohort in a community is then four weeks later proceeded by a spike in the 60 to 69-year-old demographic, whether we're talking about Wisconsin, which there was data published just recently last week, or in places like Georgia, published a data, uh, a data set published by the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly by our own CDC. There are multiple data points suggesting you cannot cocoon COVID-19. What's happening in Wisconsin? Hospitalizations have risen. Deaths have risen. They're building a field hospital, for Christ's sake. There are things happening here that are obviously the result of colleges opening. Most two out of three, every three colleges that have opened, Bob, either only test symptomatic students or do not have a testing mm -hmm. regime at all. So that, that is the big concern here is that herd immunity will result in needless loss of life. Our institute here, IHME, thinks 500,000 dead by February 1st. Cumulative, if we go towards that strategy, untold millions worldwide. That's why the WHO thinks this is unethical and immoral. A stark message there, doctor. What about on vaccines? There's been a couple of vaccine trials that have been paused due to unexplained illnesses in patients. I know we don't have full visibility into vaccine development, but what's your read on where it stands from your own perch? Well, I've been encouraged. I think this is a source of optimism. Actually, this is amongst all the doom and gloom here. The process here thus far, uh, if you remove uh, the, the efforts for the White House to politicize the whole process, you've actually seen a lot of strength come out of uh, uh, the FDA recently when they've tried to implement stricter uh, vaccine guidelines, which were then ultimately uh, uh, overruled by the, by the White House. What you've seen is pharmaceutical companies take the leader, a leading role here, saying we are, they're instituting stricter guidelines. They're pausing trials and putting a clinical hold on trials before the FDA said, let me put a regulatory hold on it. They're doing pauses uh, when any type of serious adverse event happens. The case of Johnson & Johnson recently with their, uh, their one serious adverse event, I think should give us all a lot of encouragement that to the extent possible on this accelerated timeline that's unprecedented, that what is being put forth and what's being prioritized is, sci is science and safety. So. That's important. Efficacy is going to be a key piece here because here's what we know. We know that in, uh, if you get naturally exposed to COVID-19, from the case of a Nevada gentleman who was just reinfected with COVID-19 a few weeks ago, case was written up in The Lancet, we know that natural immunity to this virus can last as, as, as short as six weeks to as long as four months. So what we need is we need a vaccine that's going to that's going to be, do better than what our own bodies can do. Hopefully provide us protection for at least a year, I would hope. 
but that's going to make potentially require a booster shot in the case of Moderna's vaccine. In the case of Johnson & Johnson, they say it's a one-time shot. Let's see how long that might connote uh, uh, protection. Is it going to be for a year? Will we still need a booster shot? It's unclear, but that those types of details are going to be vital once they report the results of their phase three trial, which are underway, hopefully completing soon by the end of the year. Final question, Dr. Gupta. Election day is approaching. Logistically, what's your advice to people, to millions of Americans, as they consider going out to vote in person? Uh, maybe they should try to vote absentee or mail-in vote. But if they do go out to vote, any any medical advice? You know, if you do go out to vote, I mean, first, just amplify your point. I, I just did mail-in voting yesterday, and um, I, I see no reason why that isn't a, a great alternative. But if you must go to the polls, uh, it's common sense. Treat it the way you would treat going into the grocery store. Uh, make sure that you have a set of uh, sanitizing wipes on you. Hand hygiene, Bob. We know that COVID-19 can last on the skin for nine hours. I know it seems like a simple concept here, but good hand sanitization, if you don't have soap and water, is key because you know, we can transmit uh, the virus just on our hands and you're going to be doing a lot of touching in that polling facility. So wipes, hand sanitization be key. Three-ply surgical mask, one of these guys, these blue masks, you should be able to get them most places now. Uh, I, I've seen them in department stores across the country. I would, at minimum, that's what I would consider doing. You want in a, in, in a place that's going to be, you're going to be in close proximity of others, some type of eye covering I don't think is unreasonable. Again, the data is a little unsettled, but um, I think that that would be the approach there. But common things being common, use your common sense. All the things that we've been talking about are things that I would think about employing, but hand sanitization and sanitizing wipes. Think like you're about to go on a flight. That's how I would approach it from a mental model standpoint. Dr. Gupta, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. And thank you all for joining us for this program with Dr. Gupta and Dr. Gupta. Uh, really interesting to hear from them, um, two doctors on the front lines of this pandemic. If you'd like to watch highlights from these conversations, just head over to WashingtonPostLive.com. You'll see our calendar of upcoming events as well. And when you're there, you'll see uh, a lot of good things coming up. So be sure to come back and join us for uh, some of those discussions, including tomorrow, my colleague David Ignatius, uh, one of my favorite writers from the editorial page. He will interview the prime minister of Iceland, someone I've actually covered in Iceland uh, back in 2019. She's one of the young leaders in, in Europe. You'll want to hear that conversation. That's tomorrow to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. But for now, thanks for watching. And I'm Bob Costa, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.